Zechariah 11, 4 to 14, verse 4. Thus says the Lord my God, pasture the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them slay them and go unpunished. And each of those who sell them says, Blessed be the Lord, for I have become rich. And their own shepherds have no pity on them. For I shall no longer have pity on the inhabitants of the land, declares the Lord. But behold, I shall cause the men to fall into one another's power and into the power of his king. And they will strike the land, and I shall not deliver them from their power. So I pastured the flock doomed to slaughter, hence the afflicted of the flock. And I took for myself two staffs, the one called favor and the other called union. So I pastured the flock. Then I annihilated the three shepherds in one month, for my soul was impatient with them, and their soul also was weary of me. Then I said, I will not pasture you, What is to die, let it die, and what is to be annihilated, let it be annihilated, and let those who are left eat one another's flesh. And I took my staff, favor, and cut it in pieces to break my covenant which I had made with all the peoples. So it was broken on that day, and thus the afflicted of the flock who were watching me realized that it was the word of the Lord. And I said to them, If it is good in your sight, give me my wages. But if not, never mind. So they weighed out thirty shekels of silver as my wages. Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. So I took the thirty shekels of silver and threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Then I cut my second staff, Union in pieces to break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Amen. In this chapter, Zechariah chapter 11, the prophet is looking to the future. He's looking to the days of Christ. In verses 1 to 3, he has already spoken of the fact that the temple will be destroyed, which took place in the days of Christ. Christ ministered about AD 30. And in A.D. 70, the temple was destroyed. Destroyed because the people rejected Christ himself. Because they rejected Christ, therefore God punished them by the destruction of the temple, the slaughter of many people, and the end of any possibility of the Jews ruling in their own land with the king on the throne of David. That possibility was completely eliminated and obliterated by AD 70 because they did not recognize the time of their visitation. They did not recognize that Christ had come and Christ had come to redeem them by dying on the cross and rising from the dead. Well, this rejection of Christ is further explained in verses 4 to 14. The rejection of Christ is in verses 4 to 14. And if we are to take this passage in the most likely manner, the most likely and best interpretation, it would be that the one who is speaking is the Father, starting in verse 4. It is the Father speaking to the Son. 
the Father, God the Father is speaking to the Son of God in verses 4 to 6. And then he follows what God tells him to do in verses 7 to 11, 7 and following. God the Father to God the Son in verses 4 to 6. That's the speech that we have recorded here. When we read verse 4, and if we are accustomed to the big letters for pronouns in reference to deity, then it might confuse us because in verse 4 it says, Thus says the Lord, my God. The M of my is a lowercase m. It would, if it were a reference to Christ and the New American Standard Bible believed it to be the case, then they would have made it an uppercase M. But they made it a lowercase M. Now, there are a couple of reasons for this, or possible reasons for it. We don't know what was in the mind of the translators. They haven't explained that to us. But as we discern a pattern in the Bible, it's probably one of two reasons. One reason, some of the passages of the Old Testament, especially the ambiguous ones, the more difficult ones, the interpreters and commentators of the Bible are very reluctant to see in them a direct prophecy of Christ, a direct one-to-one correspondence. That which was prophesied is then fulfilled in great detail in the New Testament. There are many translators of the Bible who are also commentators and interpreters. They are very reluctant to see this one-to-one direct prophecy fulfillment. Therefore, in this case, they would keep it as a lowercase m so that they may apply the passage to someone else instead of Christ. And then later, apply it to Christ if, in fact, there are parts that apply to him. Because when we get to verses 12 and 13, the 30 pieces of silver, that may ring a bell. Because in Matthew 26 and 27, that was the price, that was the cost of Judas Iscariot's deal with the religious authorities to identify Christ and betray him. That was the deal that they struck, 30 pieces of silver. And that is taken from here, Zechariah 11, verses 12 and 13. In that way, since Matthew, in Matthew 26 and 27, cites this passage, it has to be, since we believe in the apostolic interpretation of the passage, or of the Old Testament and this passage, the apostolic interpretation has to be correct. And if it is correct, then what did Matthew understand here, and what did some of the Jews, the remnant of the Jews, believe, and Matthew was a Jew and a remnant, one of the few faithful elect followers of Christ. Since he was that, what did they know? What did they understand? And what can the history of interpretation tell us? How can it inform us so that we understand what's going on in this passage? We have to ask that question. Another consideration as to why the passage may not have uppercase pronouns. Now, that The second reason is most likely not the case here. But let me illustrate that sometimes the New American Standard Bible has overlooked or made a mistake in their identification of a passage. 
that that happens occasionally. Not often, but that does happen a few times. Though that may not be the case in our passage in Zechariah 11, it's probably because they believed it was fulfilled in some other way and then reapplied, reinterpreted to apply to Christ. But occasionally or rarely you will find that the NASB overlooks a, uh, a pronoun or overlooks a, the capitalization of a word. And to illustrate that, let's turn to the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah and chapter 2. Or Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2. Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2. We read, In that day the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. In verse 2, Isaiah 4.2, the NASB has an uppercase B for branch, which is right because they see that it's a reference to Christ. Therefore, a proper noun is capitalized. Turn now to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah 11. Here, for some reason, they have not capitalized it. Though, without a doubt, this passage is teaching Christ. Isaiah 11, verse 1. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor, and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. From verses 2 to 5, they have capitalized the pronouns in reference to Christ. But they fail to capitalize the S of shoot and the B of branch in verse 1. They could have and should have done so in verse 1. They did so in 2 to 5, but they did not do so in verse 1. This is perhaps because of an oversight. Perhaps an oversight. Maybe deliberate, and if deliberate, perhaps for other reasons that we don't know. But that shows an example of how they could have or should have made certain letters in uppercase and did not do so. Well, if that's the case in Isaiah 11 verse 1, let's propose if that is the case also in Zechariah 11 4. Not only in Zechariah 11, 4, but in many verses throughout this section, in this chapter. But verse 4, 
let's first assume that the Father is speaking to the Son. So if that's the case in Zechariah 11.4, what does the Father say to the Son? Pastor the flock doomed to slaughter. Pastor the flock. Literally, it's the flock of slaughter. And the flock of slaughter means destined to slaughter. That's what's going to happen. Here, the Father has made the Son a shepherd. The Father has identified the Son as a shepherd, which is also the case in Zechariah 13, 7. Zechariah 13, 7. Here we have a more clear passage of the Father speaking to the Son. 13, 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man, my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. This is a familiar verse from the New Testament, Matthew twenty six thirty one, and Mark fourteen twenty seven. Matthew 26, 31, and Mark 14, 27, where the apostles quote this passage in Zechariah 13, 7 as applicable to Christ. The shepherd who is Christ will be struck and the sheep will be scattered. His apostles were scattered when they struck and arrested and beat and bruised Christ. When they did that to Christ, his sheep were scattered. So then, it shouldn't be a surprise that the Father is speaking of the Son in Zechariah 11.4 as a shepherd. We know this to be the case, a fact of the New Testament, such as in John 10, John 10.11-18, Jesus calls himself the Good Shepherd. I am the Good Shepherd. And the Good Shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In this case, however, this flock is the flock of slaughter, doomed or destined to slaughter. And they are further described in verses 5 and following as those who buy them slay them and go unpunished. Each of those who sell them says, Blessed be the Lord, for I have become rich. And their own shepherds have no pity on them. These sheep in this flock have worthless shepherds, ungodly, wicked shepherds who exploit the sheep. And this exploitation by the worthless, foolish shepherds is actually by the ordination of God because these sheep are worthless sheep too. Verse 6 explains for I shall no longer have pity on the inhabitants of the land. In verse 5, the shepherds, their own shepherds have no pity on their own flocks. And the reason? For I shall no longer have pity on the inhabitants of the land. Here, these sheep of this flock, they signify the people generally, not the remnant among them, but the people generally as sheep without a shepherd. And why do we have to make this distinction that 
the people of Israel generally are considered sheep, but also the remnant among them are called sheep. How can we say that? How can we make that kind of a distinction? That generally they are sheep, but also specifically they are sheep. Well, we see a distinction in verse, verses 5 and 6, or the explanation in 5 and 6, that the shepherds have no pity on them and God has no pity on them. But in verse 7, we have a portion of the flock called the afflicted of the flock. In verse 7, So I pastured the flock doomed to slaughter, Hence, the afflicted of the flock. And I took for myself two staffs. And then he continues. Verse 11. So it was broken on that day. And thus the afflicted of the flock who were watching me realized that it was the word of the Lord. It's likely the case that the afflicted of the flock signifies the remnant, the persecuted ones. Of the flock. But the flock generally is a bigger body of sheep. Does the Bible, therefore, consider the whole nation of the Jews sheep? Yes. The whole nation of the Jews is, on occasion, called sheep in the Old Testament. We find in Numbers 27 17. Moses speaking and praying to the Lord in Numbers 27, 17. We'll actually begin at 15. We'll read 15 to 17. Then Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, May the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who will go out and come in before them and who will lead them out and bring them in that the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep which have no shepherd. The whole congregation, that is the millions of people, they need a successor. And Moses is praying to the Lord for a successor to be appointed after Moses dies. Because Moses was told that he's going to die before he enters Canaan. And if that's the case, the people need a godly leader. And Moses is asking the Lord for that. And he doesn't want the people to be like sheep which have no shepherd. That is the people generally. This phrase is picked up by Christ in Matthew chapter 9. Matthew 9.35 Matthew Chapter 9 and verse 35. 35 to 38. And as Jesus was going about all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness, and seeing the multitudes, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. 
The people, the crowds, the multitudes in verse 36 are distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. Certainly they do have many shepherds, many leaders among the people, both civil and religious leaders among the people. They have them, but they're no good. That's why Jesus says that they are like sheep without a shepherd, because they have, they are ruled, they are led by worthless shepherds. So the people generally are known as sheep, sheep without a shepherd. But Christ is also a shepherd. Christ, therefore, must be the true shepherd, the good shepherd. And he is said to pastor them. Did he pastor them? Did he take care of them? Yes, we read in Matthew 9 that he was teaching them. Is that not what he did when he went from village to village and city to city? When he went to preach and to teach in all of their synagogues? Was he not being the good and faithful shepherd to the sheep? Feeding the sheep the good food of the word of God? Wasn't he doing that? So he did pastor them. He did do that, but the faithless shepherds, the worthless shepherds, the wicked shepherds, they despised him. They hated him for that. They didn't want him to have the attention of the multitudes. They didn't want him to be the one that people followed and adored. They wanted the people to follow them because they had, they had the reign, they had the authority, they had the seats of honor, and this nobody from an obscure little city called Nazareth, who is he that he should come and enjoy the attention of the crowds? That kind of envy or jealousy is what enraged them and they couldn't tolerate that he could refute them and he had more knowledge than they did. So they sought to get rid of him. And meantime, what were they doing? What was it that Jesus was constantly telling the people? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. All that they say to you, do, but don't do as they do. Didn't Jesus say things like this about the worthless shepherds? Well, here too, we find in verse 5, those who buy them, slay them, and go unpunished. Who is it that acquires sheep? Well, it's the shepherds who acquire them, and many times they have to buy them at least to start the flock or to make sure that the flock has enough males or females or young ones, or old ones, or whatever it takes to make sure that the flock is a productive and large flock. They are the ones who buy them, but after buying them, they don't take care of them, they slay them, they exploit them, they mistreat them, and no punishment comes to them. It's like Psalm 73, that the wicked prosper and there is no justice. There is no justice. That's the way it seems. We find in Mark 12, Mark 12, 38 to 40, how they did, in fact, exploit the people. Mark 12, 38. 
And in his teaching, he was saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They are the ones who devour widows' houses and for appearance's sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. They walk around with their garb. They walk around with their respectful greetings. They go to public places, the marketplaces. They have the chief seats in the synagogues, places of honor at banquets. They are the honorable ones among the people. Everyone looks up to them. Everyone seeks their advice. However, being hypocrites, they are enriching themselves. But how do they do it? Verse 40. They are the ones who devour widows' houses. How do they devour widows' houses? They tell the widows, just keep giving us your money. Just keep giving us your money. Don't worry about anything. God will take care of you. And then suddenly they don't have a house in which to live. That's how they devour widows' houses. And for appearance's sake, offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. In their prayers, are they not saying, O Lord? Are they not saying, O my God? Are they not saying, O Father, hear us? Are they not saying words like that? Taking God's name in vain? Enriching themselves by exploiting the people and not teaching the people, being hypocrites, and taking God's name in vain. All of this is here in 38 to 40. Well, it's there too in Zechariah 11:5. They go unpunished for some time. We'll see that they will indeed be punished. And each of those who sell them says, Blessed be the Lord, for I have become rich. They praise God. They take God's name in vain. Exodus 20, verse 7. They are contradicting that commandment, the third commandment, taking God's name in vain. They bless the Lord because they have become rich. But how did they become rich? They became rich by exploitation. They became rich by false teaching, and stealing the people's money. That's how they became rich. They didn't become rich because they did works of righteousness and God blessed them for their righteousness. They became rich by practicing wickedness and then praise God for it. This is a persistent, persistent, perennial sin of those who preach the gospel. 2 Corinthians 2.17 2 Corinthians 2.17 For we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Not like many peddling the word of God. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, 1 and 2. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1. 
Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. They teach and walk about in honesty and truth. They have a clean and good conscience before God and men. That's how they preach. They don't preach in craftiness and they do not adulterate the word of God. They don't pollute and corrupt the word of God. 1 Timothy 6. 1 Timothy 6. 6 to 10. 1 Timothy 6. 6. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. And if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. Also 17, 17 to 19, 1 Timothy six seventeen. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. We must keep in mind that the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy, a young man and a pastor. And as a pastor, a pastor can be enticed. He can be tempted to love money, to love riches. And the people in the church, the wealthy ones in the church, may also be enticed to be conceited and to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Both the pastor and the rich in the church should not put their hope in riches. Yet that's why Paul had to write about it and write about it constantly because that is the sore and constant temptation in the ministry. Those who are ministering and those who are receiving the ministry, the temptation of wealth. And to bless God, praise God in the midst of sinning against God, like Zechariah 11.5. Blessed be the Lord, for I have become rich. No, God didn't make you rich because you were practicing righteousness. It will end up being Riches to your own destruction, as will be explained in verse 6. Before we reach verse 6, in verse 5, he once more makes mention of the shepherds, and here explicitly he says, And their own shepherds have no pity on them. Their own shepherds have no 
pity on them. Isn't the shepherd supposed to take care of his sheep, both for himself, but also for others? Whether to provide for others or to sell to others, is he not supposed to take care of his own sheep? Why then does he exploit them, and why then does he not protect them from the wolves, from the coyotes? Why? Why are they not protected by the wild animals on the outside, and then why are they not cared for within the pen, within the flock, within the fold? Why are they not cared for? Ezekiel, he has a long discourse against this, a long discourse in Ezekiel 34. The whole chapter takes up this analogy. Let's read a portion of it in verses 1 to 6. Ezekiel 34, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. The diseased, you have not healed. The broken, you have not bound up. The scattered, you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and with severity, you have dominated them. And they were scattered for lack of a shepherd. And they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. And my flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth. And there was no one to search or seek for them. A condemnation of the worthless, useless, exploitative shepherds. Their own shepherds have no pity on their own flock. What a shame. But Christ wasn't that way. He wasn't that way. In fact, he warned us that there would be those who would be that way. He warned us that there would be those who would be just like that. He said in his own day about his contemporaries, the audience of this discourse it is not only his own disciples, but the Pharisees. In John chapter 10, in John chapter 10, he says the following. Those who exploit the sheep. John 10, verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. And a stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers." This figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, 
But they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. There are those who will seek to lead the sheep, but will not be true shepherds. They will actually be thieves and robbers. For example, verse 8, All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. Who are these thieves and robbers? The Pharisees. And we know that the audience includes the Pharisees because of chapter 9, verse 40. There is a continual discourse from 9.35 through chapter 10. And in 9, verse 40, the Pharisees are mentioned by name. So the thieves and the robbers are the Pharisees. He warns against them. But also, Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, verses 28 to 30. Acts chapter 20, 28 to 30. We are speaking of both false shepherds who have authority over the flock, but also wolves on the outside coming in. So the attack on the remnant of the flock, the attack on the true sheep is both inside the flock by false shepherds and also outside the flock by wolves. And this passage will explain both of them. Acts twenty twenty eight. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. In verse 28, the analogy begins of shepherd and flock. In verse 29, savage wolves will come in among you. The wolves are on the outside coming inside. And how do they dress? In sheep's clothing. They won't spare the flock. But also in verse 30, from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Who are the men among them? Well, this farewell address is to the Ephesian elders. The Ephesian elders. Among the Ephesian elders, he's warning them that there may be among you men who arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. But meantime, they are shepherds. Shepherds of the church generally and also the remnant of the flock specifically. They don't have pity. They don't care. They don't care for souls. They have no love of souls. They are butchers and murderers of souls. That's who they are. They're not doctors of souls. They're not physicians of souls. They're not shepherds of souls. That's not who they are. They are the opposite. No pity on the flock. Well, because they are that way and lead many of the people to be that way, what does God do? 
verse 6. For I shall no longer have pity on the inhabitants of the land, declares the Lord. But behold, I shall cause the men to fall into one another's power and into the power of his king, and they will strike the land, and I shall not deliver them from their power. In verse 6, he's predicting the downfall of the Jewish nation. He's predicting the downfall that will occur under the Romans between AD 30 and 70, especially by AD 70. Both the shepherds and the vast multitude of the people, the sheep, they are going to turn against one another. They are going to fall because each one Jew is going to betray another Jew because the one who betrays wants the favor of the Romans. And the Romans will come. They will come and fall uh, or cause the Jews to fall and their whole nation to fall, their temple and wall to fall. Everything is going to fall and be destroyed. Verse 6 is most likely, specifically, a prediction of God sending the enemies of the Jews to destroy them. The fact that God says he no longer will have pity on them is a very, very frightful thing to say. That God would no longer have pity on the people. And these are the people who were called after his name. These are the people who knew his word, who had access to the Bible. These are the people who had the covenants and the, and the patriarchs. They had... Moses and the prophets, they had a great heritage. But God says no pity. Jeremiah 13, Jeremiah 13, 12 to 14. Jeremiah 13, 12. As it happened in Jeremiah's day, so it will happen future to Zechariah. Jeremiah is about 600 B.C., Zechariah 500 B.C., and Zechariah is predicting what will happen about 570 years later in the time of Christ. Because the rulership, the leadership of the people, they will be utterly apostate and drive the nation into apostasy. Therefore, God will destroy them. As he did in Jeremiah's day, so he will do in the days of Christ. Jeremiah 13, 12. Therefore you are to speak this word to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Every jug is to be filled with wine. And when they say to you, Do we not very well know that every jug is to be filled with wine? Then say to them, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am about to fill all the inhabitants of this land, the kings that sit for David on his throne, the priests, the prophets, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with drunkenness. And I will dash them against each other, both the fathers and the sons together, declares the Lord. I will not show pity, nor be sorry, nor have compassion that I should not destroy them. God is going to fill them with drunkenness. They're going to reel and stagger. They're going to vomit. They're going to wobble as they try to walk. This is what God's going to cause them to do? In what sense? Not in the literal sense of drunkenness, although some will try to 
put away their miseries with drunkenness, but he's talking about generally the population. What's going to happen to them so that they behave like an insane, drunken man? Verse 14, I will dash them against each other, both the fathers and the sons together. Imagine that, that one person will be thrown against another person because the enemies are going to take one individual and heap him or throw him, cast him on top of another person and they're going to fall down together. They're going to be slashed and dashed and cut and bruised and bleed all together, one on top of another. And this is God doing it through the enemies. I will not show pity, nor be sorry, nor have compassion that I should not destroy them. God is the one. And this is not only the God of the Old Testament. Those who want to dismiss that this happened or can happen in the New Testament have failed to read the New Testament. They have failed. That it happened in the days of the apostles, Christ predicted it in Luke 19, Luke 19, 41 to 44. Luke 19, 41. And when he approached, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the day shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you, and surround you, and hem you in on every side, and will level you to the ground, and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. The time of the visitation of Christ. They didn't recognize it, so God is going to visit them in punishment. The enemies surround them, which was the Romans. The enemies destroy their big and beautiful, luxurious buildings and cause one stone not to be on top of another. And even the children, even the children will suffer. Luke 23, Luke 23, 27. Luke 23, 27 to 31. And there were following him a great multitude of the people, of women who were mourning and lamenting him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. And they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things in the green tree, what will happen in the dry? It will happen, and it did happen. It happened at a point in history by A.D. 70. All of these events, and more, even after A.D. 70. But all of this culminated in the destruction of the people then because of the wickedness of the people and their leadership. The people and their leaders were all wicked. 
If a blind man guides a blind man, both of them will fall into a pit. Matthew 15, 14. That's what happened to them. And the punishment was ordained by God. And no one can stop what God ordains. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.